Would you all stand with me uh, with your handles on page 7? to say, you may have a seat. We're going to do the doxology later. Maybe you just need to get up and down. Many, many times, and also other settings, 
but never really been with an amening parish. And it's very refreshing and, uh, and gratifying. So I will apologize in, in, in advance if I'm trying to get an amen out of you once. <laughs> well, anyway, so this came about uh, planning this weekend, and, uh, and then we got down to specifics. And John said, okay, well, it's a series. We preach in series here. And I said, I'm aware of that. I know that you do. Uh, I'm used to preaching for the lectionary, but it's really kind of the same distance, a difference. And I, I have preached in series at other parishes before. And I said, okay, fine, I've done that. And then John went on to say, it's a series about minor prophets. And then I kind of seized up just a little bit. Uh, because the minor prophets uh, are not the greatest area of my biblical scholarship. Um, and so I thought, okay. And, and John said, this week is going to be, this week, my week, we're going to be on the topic of compassion. And the focus was on the story of Jonah, which are young people. <laughs> um, and in that moment, I affirmed that God indeed is compassionate. God, <laughs> God is a compassionate God because this, the one minor prophet that I know the most about and the story I like the best is Jonah. So God was compassionate to me that day and this day in giving me this topic to preach about. Now, I know that, that Pastor John Pastor Melissa have, have talked about this phenomenon of the minor prophets, and I won't go back uh, and cover all the ground they did. But again, just to review, uh, the minor prophets get that kind of bum rap name, but because their writings would tend to be shorter and more focused than, uh, you know, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, they, they might not have had as much revealed to them by God. But what they did have revealed to them, oftentimes, you know, in kind of right-to-shot form, is still God's revelation. And so they are still important to us. Uh, so they, they still give us revelations on the nature of God. And today, the element of God's nature we concentrate on is compassion. And today, we look at our friend Jonah. Specifically, he addressed this attribute of God. In verse 2 of our reading today from June, Jonah said, I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love. Jonah's story is a particular favorite of mine for its illustration of, of one aspect of the compassion of God. So it's under this umbrella of compassion. One aspect of that. And that is because it debunks the myth. The Jonah story debunks the myth that grace, God's unmerited favor, is the exclusive residence, has its exclusive residence in the New Testament. The story of Jesus Christ. And indeed, that is a gracious message. But the fact of the matter is, there is a lot of grace in the Old Testament. And that's a particular nerdy interest of mine is in bringing, bringing that out. Some examples, some of which you're going to like, some of which you're not. The story of Abraham binding Isaac. Now, I, I know especially if you're a parent, you don't like that. You don't like that. It's kind of it's a hard story to take. 
remember that, that Abraham was chosen by God to be a leader of great people. And he had not exactly been exuding all of the attributes of a great leader after God first chose him. So he needed to test him to see if he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, for whom he and Sarah had waited for so many and uh, to see if he was really worthy to be this leader of a great people, Abraham. And so we know the story. He was ready to do it. He had the knife in his hand. And when he was ready to plunge it, the angel of the Lord stopped his hand. He looked over, and there was a lamb in the thicket. And as it was said, the Lord himself was right to sacrifice. There was, there was grace in that. God did not ask. In the end, did not ask Abraham to sacrifice. There's also the blessing of Aaron in Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine upon you with grace and mercy. Uh, the Psalms have elements of grace. Psalm 23, which we all know, probably by heart. Surely goodness and shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Uh, first, an element, another word for his grace. And there's actually the story of Noah in the aftermath, after the flood, when, when Jonah, or when, excuse me, when Noah did save a remnant of creation, had advanced work to do it, saved the remnant of creation. And remember what happened after God said, sent a, a, a set, a bow in the sky. God said, I'll never do this again. I'll never do this again. So, uh, there, there is grace in the Old Testament. And also remember that there's a lot of interplay between the concepts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I won't get into too many of those. But I'll just tell you, I'm going to leave that up a little bit tonight. But I will say this, consider well that whenever in the gospel Jesus says, as it is written, where do you think it was written? In what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Scripture. They were clearly very important to our so Jonah gives us multiple lessons. We will talk about three of those ultimately, but remember that one of them is grace. Grace in the Old Testament. Today, to understand today's passage, you need some context about the overall story of Jonah. Uh, the book is short, so I can give you a quick summary, or either that or bring the kids back out, because they all seem to understand. It'll probably be more entertaining than I would but um, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the Cliff's Notes version of the story of, of Jonah. I asked my wife soon, like, does they even have Cliff's Notes anymore? Or am I going to really show my age when I when I say that? Um, anyway, I'll give you the quick the thumbnails. So God wanted Jonah to prophesy to the rebellious people of this town called Nineveh, which is big, big.
themselves later in the, in the book cited are evil ways and violence. Anyway, they weren't they weren't behaving as God wanted. And God wanted to get, to get it together. And so he wanted Jonah to go and prophesy to them. And tell them to, to, get, to get it on the straight and narrow. To straighten up and fly right, as my dad used to say. But this is one little problem. See, Jonah thought that the people had earned the wrath of God, and he had no interest in saving to them. So what does he do? Tries to, as Wendy said, against you. Her children's message was as good as my homily. He runs. Jonah runs the opposite direction to Tarshish. And he hops the ship run. Alright, then there is a storm. And it is a bad storm as they are out sailing. And it gets so bad that they're afraid that the ship's going to capsize and they're throwing cargo off of it. And finally, these mates on the ship uh, were not of Hebrew origin. They were polytheistic people. But they, but they felt that there was some kind of spirit working, you know, there's some bad karma or whatever going on. And they eventually kind of focused on Jonah and said, you know, is it you or what, you know, what about this God that you pray to? And anyway, it eventually dawns on Jonah, all right, this storm is about me. It's about me, and I'm, and I'm running. So he tells, the, he tells the crew, look, throw me overboard and save yourself. My God is displeased at my action, and this is to save yourselves. Now, to give the crew a little credit, they didn't do they didn't do that right away. They thought they thought about it and debated it a little bit, but then in the end, and it became pretty obvious that was probably going to be the smart thing to do, even if that wasn't the best for Jonah. And they did throw him overboard. So, I, the scripture doesn't say whether Jonah was a very good swimmer. But we can assume that that uh, you know that even some of the best swimmers couldn't have kept afloat in a big storm, and so he he goes under. And what happens? But he is swallowed by a giant fish. He winds up in there for three days. And at the end of that time, the scripture says the giant fish vomited Jonah out onto dry land. So. So that was an interesting three days. And but the good part of the story is he got it and he turns around and does God's bidding and heads uh, back to Nineveh or heads toward Nineveh as God wanted. Gets in the city, and it's a big city, that's about 120,000 people. And uh, you know, there was no uh, uh, you know local newscast that he could get on. But, reach everybody at once. So he took a few days to walk through the city and he would call out uh, over and over, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And lo and behold, these rebellious people respond. They respond to the prophecy. And an emblematic of that was that the king of Nineveh his name we don't know. But the king uh, saw what had happened and he 
took off his royal robes in his palace. He took off all his, ro his royal robes and he put he dressed himself in sackcloth. It was like like burlap from a, a burlap sack, right? Which if you know about that, it's kind of scratchy and not, not very royal uh, appearing, appearing. And he he puts on these clothes of sackcloth and he goes outside and he sits in the dust. And he repents. And the king there re decreed that the people repent to the Lord and give up their evil ways and uh, their violence. And that's where the saying sackcloth and ashes, burn sackcloth and ashes comes from. The king of Nineveh uh, directing his people to give up their evil ways. And when God saw that the people repented, God had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So it says at the end of chapter 3. Although his mission was successful in the end, Jonah still was judgmental. He still felt at the end that they had it coming in him. And that was the exchange that we heard today that you read. And Jonah had done his work but he was bitter about it. He had done the Lord's bidding, but he wasn't happy about it. So what are the lessons for us across the millennium? There are three. And you might want to jot these down. I know that you keep notes uh, in this, in your series. This is the take from Dave's statement. Three lessons. First lesson, humility. Humility. Jonah thought he knew better than God about what the Ninevites deserved. He thought that before and after. Jonah needs a good dose of humility. And sometimes we need that too. Amen. Second lesson is obedience. That storm was a pretty blunt message to Jonah. You're going the wrong way, son. He ran, and the weather intervened. And he was going against God's word. That he was being disobedient. And the third big lesson for me is that of grace. As I mentioned, there are two big elements of this, of this third part of grace. One is God's grace to the Ninevites. Now, he didn't like what they were doing, and he was prepared. God was, God, was prepared to, to strike them down if they didn't change their ways. But he gave them a warning. After a fashion, after Jonah finally, finally got there, 40 days. 40 days, I'm giving you 40 days. We know sometimes you need a month on a straight and narrow. And the other, the other bit of grace was grace to Jonah in the form of the giant fish. You know, we tend to think of it sometimes in Christianity. We tend to think of this story and winding up in the giant fish as some sort of punishment. Right? Uh, Jonah runs, so he winds up inside a giant fish for three days. But it really wasn't. What 
whatever it was, was actually the salvation of Jonah. It saved his life and preserved it to be able to go forward to do God's Grace inside a giant. Final word. I get it. I get it that it's a fantastic story that you could survive three days in a fish. Maybe we would say it is a physical impossibility. We do have to wrestle with that as God's thinking people. And I think that's big. The Methodists are like Lutherans and you know, we think, we wrestle with it's part of part of the tradition that we that we wrestle and, and we use all of these tools. Uh, John Wesley's four tools for our own theology, our own knowledge of God, scripture being one of them, reason being another one, experience being another one. Tradition. I did I did learn my Wesleyan quadrilateral at at West at the school named after. So we do have to wrestle with lessons that are counterintuitive to our modern scientific knowledge. But many times, we can get too wrapped up in those details to see the essence of the message. In this case, for example, humility, obedience, and grace. About this tension between biblical stories and our modern scientific sensibility. I leave you with the words of the theologian Marcus Borg in his book, The Heart of Christianity. Now, Marcus Borg is not my favorite theologian. He's got a little, a, several wild ideas, but this one is really good, especially for a day like Borg says, everything in the Bible may not be literally, factually accurate, but Everything in the Bible is true. Amen? Amen. See, now you've got to be a thinking person, a thinking Christian, to come up with that. Everything in the Bible is true. So for the story of Jonah, it's not the fact of whether he can survive for three days in an anaerobic environment. It's the truth that by God's grace, God's compassion, Jonah's life was spared so that he could do God's will. And it's advice to us as we walk down our own path. I'm going to leave you with a prayer. You would join Compassionate God, help us to see the truth in your word by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And help us to be humble obedient, and to share your grace with others. In your Son's most holy name above all names, we can say one more time. Amen. Our creed for today will be the Nicene Creed.